The day after Bloody Sunday, Croke Park was a picture of tragedy. A dank winter mist hung over the ground. Some people were gathered to say prayers at the place where the Tipperary player Mick Hogan had been shot. Others were walking around the pitch with baskets, collecting hats, coats, clothes, umbrellas, walking sticks and any other items dropped by the people running for their lives. And there were others walking around the field with damp rags, soaking up pools of blood and picking shards of bone out of the ground. Luke O'Toole, the GAA's General Secretary, was accompanying a newspaper reporter around Croke Park, pointing out where the police fired into the ground from the canal bridge and the railway wall where the bullets pinged and sparked against the concrete. The reporter visited a neighbour of Luke O'Toole's alongside Croke Park, who recalled the man that staggered into her backyard, blood streaming from a wound in his leg. She called a priest and tried to stop the bleeding. One auxiliary, she said, claimed the shootings were revenge for the IRA attacks that morning. The reporter walked across the street to Fitzroy Avenue to the home of 14-year-old John William Scott. His father told the story of his son being carried from Croke Park to a nearby house with a chest wound and dying on the table and being left by soldiers on the pavement outside and how the woman who lived there pressed into his hand his son's typing and his glasses. People still flocked to hospitals around the city visiting and praying for the wounded. In Jervis Street Hospital, Daniel Carroll was lying in bed, his leg bandaged up to the waist. Surgeons had found a bullet in his thigh bone with terrible damage inflicted on the surrounding blood vessels and muscles. Carroll was originally from Templederry, County Tipperary, now working as a bar manager in a pub in Drumcondra. Sunday had been his day off, but he had called in anyway and decided to head across to Croke Park at the last minute. The owner of the pub, Martin Kennedy, and his wife were sitting beside his bed. Wasn't it misfortunate I went, Carol said. The Kennedys always knew Carol as a quiet, inoffensive man who spent his spare time with his sister May, sharing his wages with her as she tried to start her life in Dublin. Other times, he went to Croke Park when the matches were on, He was even out of Croke Park when he was hit, he told them. The Kennedys wished him well and said they'd call again. On Tuesday morning, they received news that Daniel had endured a terrible night and died. He was 31. Around the same time on Tuesday morning, a doctor in Drumcondra Hospital was telling the Robinson family that 11-year-old William who had battled his wounds for almost two days, had died just before midday. He was the third child to die at Croke Park. In Jervis Street Hospital, Michael Feary lay in the morgue, still dressed in his army fatigues, his body still unclaimed. The newspapers had began to take note. One man, middle-aged and sandy-haired, said the Dublin Evening Mail. Dark brown hair turning grey, said the Irish Independent, 
long sandy moustache, believed to be an ex-soldier, wearing an army undershirt and boots. 19-year-old Tom Hogan was also lying in the Jervis Street Hospital, his arm amputated, having been shot in the shoulder. Eileen Dalton was a nurse on the ward and wrote to Hogan's sister Lizzie in Limerick. He asked... He asked for me after coming to himself on Sunday night. Times are awful. We cannot say anything, but God save Ireland. At 12.30pm the following Friday morning, Tom Hogan finally succumbed to his injury. That morning, Michael Feary had finally been identified by his wife Bridget. And by then, many of the victims had already been buried. Inquiries into the Croke Park deaths were being organised and the battle to control the story of what happened at Croke Park had begun. In this episode, we will examine that tussle to apportion blame. The funerals of the victims across that week that stretched from the grandeur of Westminster Abbey in London to small, half-hidden graveyards in rural Ireland. And how the killings in Croke Park were received in Ireland and Britain. In the seventh episode of The Bloodied Field. As O'Toole and the newspaper reporter walked Croke Park that Monday morning, the battle to tell the story of Bloody Sunday had already begun. The previous night, two versions of the same story were in circulation. Major E.L. Mills's account as head of the auxiliary force in Croke Park, describing firing in the ground, but no shots coming from the football field. Mills said the search operation after the shooting uncovered no arms on any of the people attending the match. I did not see any need for any firing at all, Mills continued. Mills' report was never seen or heard of again. The first draft reports from Dublin Castle that night started telling a very different story. The police said the first statement had reacted to extreme provocation. The ticket sellers, who ran into Croke Park as the first police trucks pulled up on the canal bridge outside the ground, were described as scouts. The first shots came from inside the ground. Spectators had been killed and wounded by rifle fire, the statement said, but police were also fired on by Sinn Féin pickets when they were seen approaching and returned the fire, killing and wounding a number of persons. A second statement was released later that night, echoing the details contained in the first statement. Details are not yet to hand as to what actually followed, it read, but fire was returned and a number of casualties were sustained by people among those watching the match. That night in London, Winston Churchill, then Secretary of State for War, met with Henry Wilson, Chief of the Imperial General Staff. All the talk was about the British spies killed that Sunday morning. Croke Park featured nowhere in their conversation. Churchill had no sympathy for the spies, 
and insinuated, in Wilson's view, that they should have been more careful. Wilson wrote in his diary that night in a temper. I let fly about the cabinet being cowards and not governing, but leaving it to the black and tans, etc., he said. I urged on Winston for the hundredth time that the government should govern, should proclaim their fidelity to the union and declare martial law. I told him I had not intended to speak on Ireland as it was useless, but I was angry at the ministerial attitude about these poor wounded officers and I frightened Winston. The newspapers the following morning carried a mix of raw eyewitness reports and the official statements insisting the first shots came from inside the ground. The headline on the Freeman's Journal screamed Amritsar, repeated in Dublin, recalling the killing of nearly a thousand people at a public meeting in April 1919 by British troops in India. The journal reporter had also been seated at the press table in Croke Park and recalled the volley of fire from the canal end of the ground. The first and only shots came from uniformed men, he wrote. Compare that Irish view to the Times of London, who stayed loyal to the official version released by Dublin Castle. It is alleged that when the Crown forces entered the field, they were fired at by scouts who were posted all over the field. They returned fire, then people stampeded and one woman was crushed to death at the gate. It is reported that 12 persons in all were killed and over 100 wounded. Afterwards, 30 revolvers were found on the field. The Daily Telegraph reported there were at least 200 men involved in Sunday morning's murders across Dublin. The Daily Mirror described the killings that morning as equal in horror to any of the incidents that stay in Irish history since the days of Elizabeth or Cromwell. The Daily Herald headlines captured all the fear. Hell let loose in Dublin. Fierce scenes in the street and at football match. Heavy death toll. Railway stopped. Streets cleared of motors. Docks ablaze. Referring to a factory fire that also took hold that Sunday evening. Some British newspapers, like The Guardian and The Daily News, had reporters embedded in Ireland. Their coverage down the years had taken a different view, arguing that Britain were failing in Ireland. Their inability to govern, a reflection of the ruling class's wider inability to rule the British Empire in a fair way. Notably, in the Daily News, while all British coverage focused on the spies killed that morning, Hugh Martin, their correspondent in Ireland, asked about the Croke Park dead. The most ominous fact about the Irish tragedy is the way in which the scene at the Croke Park football ground is being allowed to be passed over with the most offhand notice. Is it to be held the usual thing for soldiers or armed auxiliaries, in the delicate official language, to fire volley after volley on a football crowd? Martin was also among the first reporters to take issue with the British government's version of events. He found little confirmation that the police had been fired on first and threw responsibility for the massacre onto the police. Triggered by a situation created by their political rulers that obliged them to operate somewhere between policing and an all-out battlefield. When the House of Commons convened that Monday morning, all the talk was of martial law for Ireland and maybe even the death penalty 
in certain areas of the country for unlawful possession of a weapon. It took till the afternoon before the Chief Secretary for Ireland, Hammer Greenwood, was asked about the state of affairs in Dublin. Trains out of Dublin were still stopped and motor transport severely restricted, he said. But there were no fresh disturbances. And I shall give now, he said, just as I have received them, the details of, I think, one of the most awful tragedies in the history of our empire. He listed 14 dead servicemen and six wounded, quote, including one assassin and three assassins captured red-handed with arms, referring to McKee, Clancy and Clune, all killed in Dublin Castle the previous night. Greenwood's depictions of the dead were detailed and graphic. Captain Fitzgerald, he described his forehead shattered with bullets, another through the heart, and one through the wrist he had held up to ward off shots, all fired point blank. Lieutenant Wilde at the Gresham Hotel, opening the door and asking, what do you want? For an answer, said Greenwood, three shots were fired into his chest simultaneously. Greenwood described the five shots fired into Patrick McCormack's body and head at the Gresham. Bed saturated, he said. Body, and especially head, horribly disfigured. Possibly a hammer was used as well to finish off this gallant officer. This was parliamentary reportage with theatre designed to unite the House in revulsion. The Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, didn't rule out martial law under questioning, but still kept it on the long finger. Meanwhile, as the clock struck four o'clock, there had still been no mention of the Empire citizens murdered in Croke Park. Joe Devlin, an Irish party MP from the Falls Road in Belfast, put the question to Lloyd George. May I ask the Prime Minister why it is when a question is put to himself and the Chief Secretary to recite all the horrible occurrences that have taken place last Sunday in Dublin that we have heard nothing about the appearance of the military forces at a football match at which 10 people were killed? The atmosphere turned cold. The MPs got angry. Cries of sit down echoed around the chamber. But Devlin refused and pressed on, asking why those killed in Croke Park hadn't been included in the list of dead prepared by Greenwood. I was never asked, Greenwood replied, but I am prepared to answer it now. As Greenwood rustled through his papers, MPs stayed on their feet, shouting at Devlin to sit down. Then, Greenwood whispered something to Major John Molson, a Conservative Party MP sitting nearby, who suddenly turned round and grabbed Devlin by the neck, attempting to pull him down into the row below. Other MPs tried to land a punch on Devlin. All this mayhem, soundtracked by cries of, kill him. The house was suspended for 20 minutes. When it reconvened, Molson apologised 
and Devon accepted. Then Greenwood ran through the answer about to become the standard government reply. The authorities had reason to believe that Sinn Féin gunmen came into Dublin on Sunday under the guise of attending a hurling match between Dublin and Tipperary, but really to carry out Sunday morning's murders. A mixed force of Royal Irish Constabulary, police, etc., therefore surrounded the playing fields at Croke Park on Sunday afternoon to search for arms, etc. This force was fired upon and they fired back, killing 10 and wounding others. About 3,000 men were searched. 30 revolvers and other firearms were found on the field. I regret to say that a woman and a man were crushed to death in the crowd. Greenwood's statement captured precisely where the government needed this story to go. It needed to be Sinn Féin gunmen firing the first shot. There needed to be evidence of guns at Croke Park. For all their efforts to stay distinct and away from politics and revolutionary warfare, the GAA and Gaelic football were an easy fit in London for Sinn Féin and the IRA. To borrow a depressing expression from modern Northern Irish politics, the GAA was seen by the authorities as the IRA at play. The following day, Tuesday, Greenwood added much more detail to his story and categorically laid the blame squarely on the IRA. Police had gone to Croke Park to arrest Sinn Féin gunmen, he said. Events at the football ground, he went on, go to show that this belief was well-founded. That a considerable number of men among the football crowd were carrying arms is beyond doubt. He explained the plan to stop the game and perform a search operation before claiming police were fired on from two corners of the field. Simultaneously, men rose from their places on the grandstand, he said, and fired three quick shots with revolvers into the air. Of this, there is indisputable evidence. It seems quite clear that these shots were a prearranged signal of warning to certain sections of the crowd. He described the panic as people tried to escape and how armed men outside now joined those inside the ground maintaining fire on the police. The firing didn't last longer than three minutes. 30 revolvers, he said. 12 dead, he said. Casualties he deeply regretted, but responsibility for their deaths he placed entirely upon the IRA. Those assassins, he said, whose existence is a constant menace to all law-abiding persons in Ireland. This was the compelling sort of story Greenwood had to sell, and sell hard. But it was easy to be sceptical about Greenwood and his story. Even those with a vested interest in Greenwood's story prevailing knew him as capable of bending the truth about Ireland whatever way suited him. A mythical personage, wrote Neville McCready once, who was rarely seen in the flesh in the land of his appointment. 
Different versions of the story were already being told by the newspapers. Eyewitness accounts from the Monday spilled over into the Tuesday. The idea of a pitch strewn with guns wasn't taking root everywhere. The first question on the Tuesday after Greenwood's statement came from a Liberal Party MP, Lieutenant Commander Joseph Kenworthy. He asked whether Greenwood was aware that many eyewitnesses were now prepared to swear that no shots were fired at the police. Is he also aware, asked Kenworthy, that the so-called pickets were men selling tickets outside the field? Does he justify firing into a struggling mass of people, including women and children, in an attempt to pick out a very small minority of armed men? Edward Kelly from the Irish party asked about a machine gun being turned on the crowd and a boy apparently being bayoneted to death. The boy was John William Scott, the wound from the ricocheted bullet to his chest making it look like he'd been stabbed. Greenwood denied both charges and clung to his statement. I have stated the facts which have been put before me, he replied. I believe they are accurate. Another question about whether the airplane that released a flare just before the game was armed and fired on the crowd was brushed aside by Churchill, who insisted the plane was performing routine patrol duties with a partially dismantled gun. Joe Devlin returned to the chase, asking if the official statement said revolvers were taken from people at Croke Park, well then why wasn't anyone arrested? In response, Devon was asked by Greenwood to submit his questions. Viscountess Nancy Astor returned again to the question of the boy who was bayoneted. May I ask then if the right honourable gentleman will look into the terrible allegation that a British soldier bayoneted a boy ten years of age. No one can believe it. It is a terrible thing for anyone to say it has happened. In the clamour and noise of the Commons, she never received an answer. On the same Tuesday that Greenwood gave his second statement on the Croke Park killings in the House of Commons, Mick Hogan lay in the Pro-Cathedral in Dublin. On Monday, word of his death had reached his mother Margaret in Grange Mokler. Father O'Leary, the local priest, had received word from Ned O'Shea, the Tipperary captain that morning, and brought with him another local priest, Father Fitzgerald. They broke the news gently, telling her about the shootings in Croke Park and the Black and Tans, and how Mick had been shot. It can't be true, she said. On Wednesday, Mick was taken to Kingsbridge Station, now Houston Station, for the train journey to Clonmel. Every shop in town was closed before the train arrived at one o'clock. As the local volunteers marshalled the crowd gathering at the station, the local head constable of the RIC arrived on the scene, asking who was in charge. A volunteer stepped forward. We are, he said. A group of soldiers had taken up positions inside the train station 
their bayonets fixed. The RIC constable consulted with their commanding officer and the soldiers were ordered to withdraw. Hogan's coffin was brought from the train carriage draped in a tricolour. His sisters, Maggie and Mary, and his brother Patrick were waiting on the platform. Instead of being put in the hearse outside, his coffin was borne by friends and neighbours through Clonmel. A few soldiers even saluted as they passed the British Army barracks. The hearse was waiting at the end of the procession to take Mick back to Grange Mokler. Volunteers and members of Common Amon, the Republican women's organisation, lined the route and all the houses kept their blinds drawn. When the cortege reached Grange Mokler, the tricolour was removed to reveal a glass coffin lid. Hogan was dressed in his Tipperary kit, donated by his teammate, Jack Kickham. Volunteers stood vigil through the night at his coffin, among them Patrick Butler, the IRA volunteer we met in episode one, who was planning the cancelled raid on the RIC barracks in Glenbower, using Mick Hogan's home as their base. On Thursday morning, Hogan was buried in Grange Mokler Cemetery. 18 wreaths were laid around his grave. The flowers sent by family members and the Tipperary County Board, Common Amman and the local Sinn Féin Club, the local IRA company and friends from across South Tipperary. In the middle of them all sat a wreath from Dick Lanigan, his friend from home in Grange Mokler, who would substitute that Sunday for Tipperary in Croke Park. Heartfelt sorrow from your friend, read the note. The same sorrowful journeys were being made in Dublin and elsewhere that day. Six victims were buried in Glasnevin Cemetery. Jane Boyle, buried in her wedding dress on the week she was to be married. Patrick O'Dowd, the man who helped people over the wall when the firing was at its highest. John William Scott, the boy who lived across the road from Croke Park. James Matthews from North Cumberland Street in the city, the man who went to Croke Park on a last-minute whim. His wife Kate, now sitting in the pro-cathedral with their two daughters, and six months pregnant with their third. Dan Carroll, the Tipperary man shot as he left Croke Park, and Tom Ryan, who whispered an act of contrition into Mick Hogan's ear, were also buried at Glasnevin. On Friday, William Robinson, the 11-year-old boy in the tree, was brought from Halston Street Church in the inner city to Glasnevin. Michael Feary was lowered into a mass grave. 10-year-old Jerome O'Leary had been buried in Glasnevin on the Wednesday. All the families were subject to the same restrictions imposed by the authorities. No flags, no banners, and no public displays of any kind were permitted. Attendance was limited to close family and friends. 
Some families simply wished to quietly bury their loved ones. James Burke was taken to St. Nahi Cemetery in Dundrum, South Dublin, and buried there. James Tehan, the pub owner from Tipperary, crushed in the crowd like Burke, was buried in Ballinalacken Cemetery outside Glengool Village in a place hidden from the road by trees and a stream. But others were determined to mark that part of their lives they lived away from the football field. In Grange Mokler, volunteers fired volleys over Mick Hogan's grave. A group of volunteers also emerged at Joseph Trainer's funeral at Bluebell Cemetery on the outskirts of Dublin to mark his membership of the IRA. When the body of Tom Hogan was brought to Drummond Cemetery in the Limerick countryside, volunteers came from across the county. His family had a strong involvement in the IRA. All of Hogan's brothers were members of the Brewery Brigade, and when Hogan had gone to Dublin, he had also joined an IRA company. The family home at Tankardstown was known as a safe house. Messages were stored in a specially hollowed out statue of the Virgin Mary, positioned at the end of the garden. Hogan's sister Maggie had a basement specially constructed for hiding IRA men and placed a giant knitting machine over the trap door. On the day of Tom Hogan's funeral, some local RIC officers stopped on the road outside the cemetery, watching from the wall as three volunteers dressed in green and wearing bandoliers emerged from the crowd and fired a volley. The RIC men chose not to interfere. That same Thursday, as those families buried their dead, nine of the men killed that Sunday morning by the IRA began a very different journey to their final resting places. Businesses in Dublin were ordered closed that morning. The coffins were carried by gun carriage from Arbor Hill in the northwest of the city, down the Liffey Keys towards Sackville Street. Black and tans and auxiliaries moved among the crowd gathered along the river, throwing into the water the hats of those who hadn't removed them as the cortege passed by. At the north wall, the coffins were placed on a destroyer headed for Wales. On Friday, massive crowds gathered as the cortege moved through central London, escorted by bands and battalions and mounted troops, heading for the grandeur of Westminster Abbey and Cathedral. An elderly flower seller threw her basket of violets and chrysanthemums onto the road. A young man beside her told of surviving the Great War in Europe, then getting pipped outside Dublin Castle. That's what they do to us, he said. Shoot us in the back. Already, Britain was gripped with conspiracy theories about the IRA bringing their war to England. Cities would be burned. The water supply would be infected with typhoid. The Daily Mail newspaper claimed cotton warehouses and timber yards were set on fire by the Irish. Barriers were erected to protect Downing Street in reaction to a story of an attack by motor car and the Houses of Parliament were closed to visitors. Across Britain, Irish politicians tried to refute the stories and appealed to the people for calm. Arthur Griffith, the Sinn Féin leader, dismissed the typhoid theories as a ridiculous lie. 
but the tension was unbearable. Griffith was also president of the Doyle and was arrested early Friday morning, causing a political storm and sending Lloyd George into a rage. Neville McCready pointed out that getting Griffith and other Sinn Féiners off the streets in Dublin would calm the national mood. Whatever about the impact on the politics of home rule and all the rest, the RIC and auxiliaries also needed handling. With Griffith in custody, went McCready's logic, the IRA mightn't be as inclined to try anything audacious for now. McCready's attitude to Croke Park was equally cold and completely without nuance. All he sought now was a strong military hand to bring Ireland into line. The killings at Croke Park, he wrote years later, were simply a failure on the part of the police to adhere to the exact timetable. In the week after Bloody Sunday, the mayhem continued. On Monday, scores of people were arrested across Munster. More were picked up in Galway City and in the town of Athlone. A police truck careered through Cork City that night, firing random shots at buildings as it went. The IRA killed an intelligence officer near Ballancolig, outside Cork City. RIC constables were killed in Lepp in West Cork, Newry in County Down, and the Phoenix Park in Dublin. Newspapers were raided. Union headquarters were also ransacked. Post was taken from the GPO. The Archbishop's residence in Drumcondra was visited by police and his valet was arrested. The following Sunday, 17 auxiliaries were ambushed and killed by the IRA on a remote road near Kilmichael in Cork. There seemed no end to the slaughter. Join us next time for the final episode of the Bloodied Field podcast as we try to extract the truth of what happened at Croke Park from the inquiry set up in late 1920 to look into those events. We meet the families and the people impacted by the killings to this very day and we'll reflect on how Bloody Sunday changed the GAA and the nation for good. Thanks for listening. The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had four special guests on the show. Richie McCormack played Hugh Martin, the Daily News correspondent. Karen C. Foley played Eileen Dalton. Brendan Crossan voiced Joe Devlin. And Sarah McConnell played Viscountess Nancy Astor. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash Bloody Sunday or on Spotify. You can also contact us on Twitter at bloodiedfieldp1 or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. This is a story we feel everyone needs to hear. <laughs>